Amen. Well, hey, good morning again, and uh, if you're new, welcome again to Veritas. We're glad uh, that you're here. My name is Ryan. I serve here uh, as one of the pastors, and uh, this morning we are in our second week of a series on God's attributes, talking about who God is and why uh, that's really good news for us. And as we walk through these final three weeks of this series, I want to free you up a little bit. I, th- I think it's really easy in a series like this to assume that this is a lot more like a classroom lecture, that, that you're going to be quizzed on the information at the end, and so it's really important that you get all the definitions down and you make sure you can remember all the information because, again, you're going to get quizzed on it at the end, and uh, that's just not what a sermon is at all. Even uh, in a series like this that's much more focused on teaching a specific doctrine, uh, sermons are much more formational than informational. Uh, just like you, you don't remember every meal that you've ever eaten, unless you eat the same thing for lunch every day, I'm sure you probably couldn't tell me what you had for lunch three months ago, uh, but all of those meals God used to nourish you and strengthen you and keep you alive. In the, in the same way, I really couldn't care less if you can reproduce my outline at the end of this sermon. What I care about is the work that God hopefully does in your heart to grow you and nourish you and form you deeper into the image of Jesus. Like our our goal here this morning is not getting what's on my notes onto your notes. Uh, Our goal here is worship. Our our goal is seeing the goodness of God and who he is and hopefully being led to a deeper response of trust in him and love for him as a result of that. And so if if taking notes and writing down definitions, if if that helps you track and engage and do that, then feel free to do that. But if that Uh, just puts a little bit of pressure on you. Uh, Don't feel like you need to do that. Just listen and engage and hopefully have your heart stirred uh, by the goodness of God for you uh, this morning. Now, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably picked up on the fact that I don't have a very developed palate. Um, Friends make fun of me and say that I have the palate of a five-year-old, and uh, it's a little bit hurtful, but it is pretty true. Um, because I like what I like, and I can be a little bit of a picky eater. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I did not like chili. I hated it. Uh, but, but probably better said, I just refused to try it, because to me, uh, all chili was like the Wolf brand chili that comes out of the can, and it comes out of the can real black and dark and nasty, and it, like, it looks so gross, it almost feels like it would be sinful to feed that stuff to your dogs. And so... Like, I thought that was what all chili was, and so I just stayed away from all of it and just refused to touch it. And so, uh, obviously, Braylon knew that, and she knew that I'm a pretty picky eater. And so, a few years ago, I said, hey, what are we doing for dinner? And she said, oh, it's this new ground beef recipe. I'm not sure what it's called. Uh, I haven't made it for you before. Uh, You're really going to like it. And so, I didn't ask questions, because that's where my food's coming from, and I like ground beef. And so, I uh, ate this meal and ended up loving it. And after I was done eating it, she told me that I had just eaten chili. Uh, and after I got over the initial hurt and shock and betrayal of all of that, uh, ever since then, I have loved chili, have craved it, and, and every fall really enjoy getting to eat it. Now, you can decide if she was being shady or not. Uh, the reality is, if I was more of a grown-up and would actually try stuff, she wouldn't have to do stuff like that, right? But... Uh, the point is, uh, is that I changed, right? I went from not liking chili, or at least thinking I didn't like chili, to loving it and wanting to have it. I, I changed because of this new experience. And, and if there's anything that's really constant and unchanging in our lives, it's that reality that we are constantly changing, right? We get older, we get taller, we gain or we lose weight, we uh, start to lose our hair, our hair starts to go gray, we try new things, we get rid of old things, we decide we like new stuff, we have these new experiences, even things as simple as trying new food, every day in our lives brings about more and more change. Uh, and so this morning we're talking about the doctrines of God's immutability and God's impassibility, how God does not change and God does not suffer. Uh, and when we come to these doctrines, it's pretty easy for these to feel a little bit foreign to us because all we know in our lives is change. Uh, and most of the time for us, change is, is usually, again, if not most of the time, for the better. Uh, it was a sign of growth for me to try something new and realize I actually liked it. 
And when we talk about people who don't change, we say things like, oh, that's just who they are. They're never going to change. They're not going to be able to fix that. They're never going to change. And we say that uh, as if that's something bad. That's a sign of hopelessness. It's a bad thing uh, that those people aren't going to change. But that's not the case with God. I want to hopefully show you this morning why the good news that God does not change is really that. It's some of the best news in the entire universe for us, that God has not, God does not, and God will not change. And so let's see this together. I'm going to read from uh, actually four different places in Scripture to introduce this truth to us. Uh, We'll pray for God's help, and then we'll talk about this together. And so hear the word of the Lord. This is first Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Then Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then James 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, uh, as we come to you now, we want to first rejoice in the truth of your word here that you do not change, that that your years are the same and you will remain and you uh, you are the same, your years have no end. God, thank you that because you do not change, we are not consumed. God, as we discuss who you are this morning and look at your word, would you help us? God, for those who today is a difficult day for because they've suffered loss, because they long to be mothers and haven't got to experience that joy yet, God, would, would you be near to them? But the truth that you don't change, that you haven't wavered in your love for them and your care for them at all, that you can't be overcome by suffering, God, would you meet them and minister to them in this moment? God, would you meet us here and and minister to us the truth of who you are? Open our eyes to see just how good you are and how these things that, that might feel counterintuitive, the ways that you're not like us, are actually ways to worship you and, and, and rejoice in you because of who you are. God, help us now. I pray that you would. In your name, amen. And so again, uh, we're talking first about God's immutability or the truth that God is not mutable, that he does not change. Uh, And as we just saw, this is really the clear teaching of the Bible. In Malachi 3, God goes so far as to say himself, I, the Lord, do not change. In James 1, it says God doesn't even have the shadow due to change. Uh, The shadows that the sun casts, they move and change throughout the day. They get longer or shorter depending on what time of day it is. But God doesn't even have change like that. He doesn't even have the shadow of change. Because while Numbers 23 says God just doesn't change his mind, Psalm 102 and Malachi 3 and James 1 go even further to say that God does not change in his essence, in his nature. Which means that what it means for God to be God is to be immutable. It is God's nature and essence for him to be unchanging, to not have the ability to change. This is often why the Bible refers to God and uses the metaphor of God being a rock. Because like rocks that are stable and steadfast, God is stable and steadfast. He does not change. Listen to how David in the Psalms puts this truth together that what it means for God to be God is to be a rock, to be immutable. Psalm 18, verses 30 and 31, he says this. He says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. 
For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And, and notice also in verse 30, he says this God, His way is perfect. When, when we're talking about God, we're talking about a being whose way is perfect, but not just His way, uh, He Himself is perfect. Remember last week, we talked about how God has the fullness of life in and of Himself, that He is completely perfect. And so when we're talking about a perfect being, for God to be perfect, He has to be immutable. He has to be free from any sort of change. I mean, think about it. If God was perfect and then He changed for the worse, uh, then He wouldn't be perfect anymore. Or if God wasn't yet perfect and then He changed for the better, then He wasn't perfect before. And how can we trust either way uh, His promises? Because if He changes for the worse, what if He ends up changing so much that He actually isn't loving anymore and He decides to stop loving me? What if He changes so much in His nature and character that He's not who He is anymore? Or if He changes for the better, uh, how can I trust His promises that He made before? What if He changes His mind about those again? And if He changed for the better, someone or something had to act on Him to make Him change for the better. Someone had to give Him new information that He didn't have. Someone had to help Him out to be wiser or more powerful or more enlightened. And so He's not all-powerful. He can't back up His promises. Either way, we have no grounds to trust Him if God could change. You see, we change because we aren't perfect and we're mortal. We change in our bodies because we're mortal and we're subject to decay. And we change in our character because we need to get better. We need to improve morally and be better people in the way that we are. But when we talk about God, we're talking about someone who is perfect. We're talking about a rock. And to say that God is a rock is not to say that He's dead and lifeless. It's actually to say the opposite, that He's so full of life and so full of joy and so full of happiness that any change in Him could only be a change for the worse. For God to be immutable means that God couldn't be any more loving. He couldn't be any more holy. He couldn't be any more faithful. He couldn't be any more righteous than He already is. And on and on and on we could go because God is perfect. And remember what we talked about as well last week, that God is simple. God is not made up of parts. Remember the Pink Floyd album. God's essence and His attributes, His nature and His character are, are one, but we can distinguish between His attributes and the way He reveals Himself to us so that we can more truly know Him. And so God is immutable in His simple essence. He's unchanging in His character, which means His love is unchanging. His justice is immutable. His righteousness will never change. He will never change in His mercifulness towards His people. And on and on we could go. He is free from any shadow of change. He absolutely does not change. This is why an old dead guy once referred to... Uh, an immutability as the enamel of God's perfections. Enamel in the sense that immutability is like a coating that ensures and seals and protects the rest of God's attributes. It's because God is immutable that we can say that He has a saity, that He's always existed with the fullness of life in and of Himself, that He's never needed anything, He's never been dependent on anyone. It's because God does not change that we can say that God is simple, that He's never added love or justice to Himself, that there wasn't a time when He got wiser or better than He was before, that He's always existed as the fullness of who He is, as the unchanging, perfect being at the center of the universe. But maybe as we're talking about this, you're thinking, yeah, but... Uh, maybe this is true, but I've read my Bible, and there's some places where it pretty clearly says uh, that God seems to change, that God regrets some decision that He made. And so what do we do with that? It seems like the Bible does say that God changes. Uh, well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Let's talk about this and answer this together. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, 1 Samuel 15, and then we'll read some of this passage together. One of these passages where God says He regrets uh, a decision he made. And so in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul is the king of Israel and Samuel is God's prophet. And Samuel comes to Saul and tells him that God is commanding him to wipe out the Amalekites completely and not leave their cattle and their animals alive as spoils of war for himself. 
uh, because the Amalekites tried to wipe out Israel when Israel was coming out of Egypt and they were an incredibly wicked people. And so Saul doesn't do this. He defeats the Amalekites, but he keeps the king alive and he keeps all the animals alive uh, in direct defiance of what God told him to do. And so Samuel comes to confront him about this and he says, why did you keep the animals alive? And he says, well, I wanted to keep them alive so that I could offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, don't you understand that God cares much more about your obedience than wrote acts of sacrifice when your heart is not in it? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Why didn't you just do what God told you to do? And then listen to what the chapter says. This is 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11. It says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And then 24 through verse 29, it says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then finally, verse 34 and 35, it says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so twice in that passage we have it. Verse 11 and verse 35, the Lord regretted making Saul king over Israel. And so does God change or not? Well, when we're talking about the language that the Bible uses to describe God to us, we've got to make sure we're understanding uh, what type of language the Bible is using. There's really three options for how the Bible could be talking about God when it's telling us about God. The first is that the Bible could be using equivocal language, which means that the two terms uh, that are being used don't, uh, they're, they're so polar opposite from one another that they don't help understand each other at all. And, and so, for example, the words bear, B-A-R-E, and bear, B-E-A-R, obviously sound the same and, and have the same amount of letters, uh, but they don't help us understand the other one at all. Because if someone said to you, your kitchen is bare, and there's a, or there's a bear in your kitchen, uh, obviously those two sentences mean two way different things, one obviously much more terrifying than the other, uh, but the point is they don't help us understand the other one at all. Uh, if the Bible was using equivocal language when it talked about God, we would have no hope of understanding Him because it wouldn't give us any sort of help as to what, uh, he, what He's like at all. The good news is that's not how the Bible talks about God. The second option is that the Bible's language for God could be univocal, which is where the two terms and concepts mean the exact same thing, and everything that's true of this word or this concept or this metaphor when it's applied to human beings is also true when it's applied to God. And so, for example, uh, to say that God is a father means everything that it means for me to be a father. To say that Jesus is the Lion of Judah would mean that he is literally a lion, uh, which obviously would not make sense. Uh, if the Bible's language about God was univocal, uh, there'd be no metaphorical language about God. And, and most of us pick up on this pretty intuitively uh, when the metaphor's a little bit more far out there. Like earlier when I read in Psalm 18 that God is a rock, I really doubt that anyone thought that that means that God is a big rock up in the sky that if we just look hard enough and get a telescope that's good enough, we'll be able to see Him. And so we understand the Bible uses metaphorical language, but often we take language that is not meant to be univocal to be univocal. And so what I mean by that, again, for example, so often we hear the Bible talk about how God is a father and we import our, all of our definition of human fatherhood onto that. And if we had a bad experience, we think 
that, that what it means for God to be a father is what it must have been like for my dad to be a father. How he was distant and harsh and unloving and cold, and God must be just like that. But that's not what the Bible means when it says that God is a father. Univocal language would also be bad news for us because it would shrink God down to our level like He's just a bigger version of us up in the sky, but He's not. He's the Creator and we are creation. God is not like us. And so that leads to the third option, what I think is the most biblical option and what really the church historic has believed is the way that the Bible talks about God. The Bible uses analogical language when it's talking about God. And so the words and the phrases and the concepts, they give us an analogy. Uh, They don't say that everything that's true of that word or that concept is true when we apply it to God, but some aspects of it are true so that we can really and truly, even if not fully, know God. And, And if that's all still confusing, let me explain it like this. Like, for example, in Isaiah, the Bible says that God's hand is not shortened so that He cannot save and his ear is not dull so that he cannot hear. Now, like we heard last week in John 4, uh, Jesus says God is spirit, which means that God does not have a body. God is spiritual. He's not material. Uh, And so we shouldn't imagine when we think of God, some really big old dude up in the sky with a big white beard, he's not a human being. He doesn't have a human body like we do. He doesn't have a body. He's spiritual not material, and so he obviously doesn't have ears and hands like we do, and so when the Bible uses this language, it's using metaphorical language to tell us something true, uh, even true about God. For, For the Bible to say that God's hand is not shortened means he's not limited in his power to save us. He doesn't lack any ability to save us. To say his ear is not dull is to say that he has the ability to hear our prayers, that he's not Uh, limited in his capability to do that. And so because the Bible uses analogical language when it's talking about God, when we read something that the Bible says about God, we've got to think about everything that the Bible says about God to help us better understand what it's telling us in this specific place about him. And so for example, with 1 Samuel 15, uh, it says, and God himself says, that he regrets making Saul king over Israel. But what else does the Bible teach us about God? Well, the Bible also teaches us that God is all-knowing, that He knows everything. And so if God is all-knowing, how could He be surprised and have regrets like we do? Because you think about it, when we have regrets, the reason we usually regret something is because we make a decision without knowing how it was going to play out, and then we see it play out in time, and we think, man, if I just would have known then what I know now, I never would have made that decision And this never would have happened. I really wish I wouldn't have made that decision. But again, Isaiah 46 says God knows and declares the end from the beginning. So how can he be surprised like we are? Like God was not, Saul's disobedience did not take God by surprise. He knew exactly what Saul was going to do. And so God cannot, when we're talking about God regretting, it cannot be that God made a decision without having all the facts, uh, then saw how, it was gonna pl- saw how it played out, and then wished he could go back in time and make a different decision. No, he knows and declares the end from the beginning, and so when the Bible says and that God regrets, it's not saying he regrets in the way that we do, because also, think about the passage we read right in the middle of 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel says, God's not like a man, that he should lie or have regret. He will not lie or have regret, again saying he is not like us. And so if he doesn't regret the way that we do, what is this saying when it says that he has regrets? Well, it's saying that God is displeased over the sin of someone, in this case Saul, and it signals that because of that, he's going to make a change in our situation, in our affairs. God hates the sin of Saul, and because of that, he's going to take the kingdom away from Saul, and he's going to give it to David, to someone who's better than Saul. And so it's signaling that a change is about to happen in our lives, in our affairs. It does not mean that God changes in himself or that he has regrets like human beings do. And so God does not change. We'll come back to why that's such good news in just a little bit, but first I want to introduce you to the second attribute 
of God that we're talking about this morning, God's impassibility. What does it mean for God to be impassable? Well, it means that God does not suffer or that God does not have passions. Now, when we say that, when we say God doesn't have passions, we need to distinguish between passions and emotions. Because when our brothers and sisters from earlier in church history talked about God is impassable and how He doesn't have passions, they were defining passions in a much different way than we do today. Uh, Because for us, if someone's really passionate about something, that means they really care about it. But that's not what they were talking about when they said that God doesn't have passion. Passions in this context refers to someone or something outside of you overpowering you and causing you to have emotional change. So someone or something that was stronger than you could act on you and cause you to suffer in some way, to suffer some sort of loss. Someone could act on you and cause you to be happy or sad or fearful or anxious. Uh, You could be overcome and overpowered into an an emotional change. And if you want an example of what that looks like, uh, think of the Greek gods from Greek mythology. The Greek gods are really more like supersized men and women uh, in the sense that they are just as fickle and driven by their passions as we are. Because they'd be happy one day and then somebody would do something to them and they'd want to get angry about that, want to get revenge, and they'd just wreak havoc until they felt like they had appropriately gotten revenge. They'd be happy one day, and then driven by lust the next, and if they got spurned by whoever it was they were lusting after, they'd take that out on human beings and destroy your crops or try to kill your family. You had to constantly appease them with sacrifices because you had to constantly try to keep them on your good side. You had to keep them happy constantly, and you never could really trust them because they were happy one day and furious the next. When we talk about God not having passions, we're saying God is not like that. That God is not like the Greek gods. That God cannot ever be overcome or overpowered by anybody in a way that would cause Him to suffer or to cause Him emotional change. That God is not moody. That God is not a hormonal teenager up one day and down the next. That God is never at the mercy of somebody else. Because God does not have passions. He's not driven by his passions. Now, when we talk about that, it's really easy for some of us to jump to the conclusion and say, well, okay, well, that means that that God's just really indifferent and apathetic and he doesn't really care about us. And that's not the case at all. We're, We're not saying that God doesn't have emotions. God does have emotions, but again, his emotions are not like ours. We've got to think with analogical language when we talk about God's emotions. Because for us, our emotions are connected to our bodies and we can't control our emotions. We can control our response to our emotions, but we can't control them from happening to us. For example, if someone says something that embarrasses you, what happens? You get embarrassed and your face flushes. And even if you try really hard to think about, don't let my face flush, it's going to flush. You can't stop it from happening to you. Uh, You could be really happy and be having a great day, and then all of a sudden you remember something that's really sad or something bad that has happened to you, and and sorrow floods in, and you're overwhelmed with grief, and you can't stop that from happening. It just comes upon you, and it overcomes you. You're alone in the house, and you hear a noise from somewhere else in the house, and what happens? You start sweating. Your heartbeat gets a little bit faster. The hair on the back of your neck stands up, and you get scared and more alert. And you didn't control any of that. Those were bodily responses to what was happening to you, the things that were acting on you. But again, God doesn't have a body and God doesn't get surprised, so we can't say he experiences emotions like that. When we talk about God's emotions, God's emotions flow from his character. They flow from his will. Uh, Just like God does not change in his nature and character, that means he does not change in his emotions as well. God is not really happy one day and then sad and angry the next. He's completely rock steady in who he is and in his emotions because he does not suffer passions. He's not driven by emotional change. And and when we say that, it's not 
that God is this sort of lifeless rock up in the sky. Again, it's the exact opposite. It's that God is so full of life and so full of love and so full of compassion and so full of care for us that any change in Him could only be for the worse. Any emotional change in Him could only make Him care less about us or love us less, but that's never going to happen because God does not suffer. God does not have passion. And listen, this is what we want. We don't want a God who suffers in His divinity, a God who is overcome and overwhelmed by the forces of emotional change, a God who can be overpowered into emotional change by somebody else. Let me give you a few illustrations from a guy named Paul Gavriljuk. I've been working on that pronunciation all week long. Uh, Paul Gavriljuk, uh, that, that were really helpful in clarifying to me because he points out the fact that many of the compassionate actions that we do don't actually require you to emotionally identify with the person suffering to do them. And so, uh, for example, um, imagine that you've got a tumor that's going to require radical invasive surgery to remove it and fix it, and you've got to get it out or, or you're going to die. And so you go to the doctor to, to have that tumor taken out and that surgery to fix it. What do you want the doctor to do in that moment? You want him to take out the tumor, obviously, right? But what if the doctor is so overwhelmed with grief and sadness at your situation that they're crying and they're shaking and they're so scared that their hands are shaking and they can't actually operate on you and they mess up the operation and they don't get the tumor out, they don't actually heal you and you die as a result. Like what you needed in that moment was the doctor to be the doctor and not to be the patient, to not be so overwhelmed and overcome by their emotions that they couldn't actually operate on you to heal you. Like, in a real sense, that doctor had to be impassable. He could not let his emotions overwhelm him to the point that he couldn't actually function in his capacity as a surgeon and do his job. Or imagine that there's a house on fire in your neighborhood, and uh, there's a family that's still trapped inside in the house. And the firefighters have been called, but they haven't arrived yet. And, and all the neighbors are around the house, and, and all the neighbors are having different emotional reactions to what's going on in the house. Uh, some people, some of the neighbors, are so scared and overwhelmed with grief and sadness at this that they've uh, collapsed into the grass and they can't go into the house. Others are so paralyzed with fear that they literally can't move, they can't go into the house to help out either. Someone has is in so much shock from what's happening that they've passed out in the grass and still no one has gone in to help the family in the house. But the firefighters still have not arrived yet and they're not going to get there in time. And so let's say that, that a man from the neighborhood decides he's going to go into the house and try to save this family because if he doesn't attempt to save them, they're not going to make it out of the house. And so at great risk to himself, he runs in and he gets the family out of the house and gets them to safety just in time and saves them from the fire that was devouring their house. Now, if that were to happen, who really showed compassion in that moment? Obviously, the man that, that went into the house and got the family out, right? It really didn't matter how he felt in that moment. What mattered is that he did not let his emotions at the situation overwhelm him and overcome him to the point that he couldn't actually go get the family out of the house. And the people that, the, the neighbors that were fearful and scared and had collapsed into the grass, they weren't actually compassionate towards the family, even though they emotionally identified with the family in their suffering and they suffered with them they weren't able to do that in a way that saved them. The man that went into the house is the one that showed compassion. And so, again, this is what we want our God to be like. We want a God who is impassable, who cannot suffer, who is not driven by his passions, who will not be overcome or overwhelmed with suffering, and who cannot be conquered by it, who instead will conquer our suffering for us. But again, just like with immutability, I'm sure some of you are thinking, yeah, maybe that's true about God, but, but what about all the passages in the New Testament that very clearly say that Jesus suffered? I mean, Jesus himself says uh, in John's Gospel that his soul is sorrowful even to the point of death, and he's arrested, he's beaten, he's chained, and he's put to death on a cross. He sweats drops of blood in the garden as he's praying. 
clearly he suffers, and he's God, is he not? And so what do we do with that? Well, this is actually the question that the church debated for the first five uh, centuries of her history, this question of how do we reconcile all these truths, that God is impassable, that Jesus is God, and yet Jesus clearly suffers. And so in trying to answer this question, a lot of different heresies and explanations popped up. Uh, At first, some people said that Jesus is God, but he only appeared to be a man when he took on flesh. It was more like God in a skin suit, and so uh, he just looked like he was suffering and dying. He didn't actually suffer and die. He just played this nice magic trick on everybody. But obviously, that doesn't work because if the suffering and death of Jesus wasn't actually that and it was just a magic trick, then no one has suffered and died to pay for our sins and we're still in our sins. We are not saved. And so the church rejected that. Then the Arians came along and said that the Father uh, is impassable and He's the one true God And Jesus is a God, but He's not the one true God. God the Father created Him uh, at some point in time and as the kind of the first most exalted part of His creation. And so Jesus is passable. He can suffer, but God the Father does not. But again, this doesn't work because if Jesus is not truly and fully God, uh, if He is not God Himself, then He is outside of the life of God just like we are. He can't reconcile us to God. He's on the outside looking in in the same place that we are. And if Jesus is this weird sort of hybrid mix, not really God, not really man, uh, then, then His death and His suffering isn't really His suffering as a human being for us. He suffered as this weird third thing that nobody else is. And so again, the church rejected that. Well, then there was a debate between two bishops, Nestorius and Cyril of Alexandria. And Nestorius said uh, that when we're talking about Jesus, we're really talking about two different people, God the Son and Jesus the Man. And so God the Son indwells Jesus the Man like a temple, but they're not the same person. It's not one person, it's two different people uh, when we're talking about Jesus. And so he said when Jesus the Man died on the cross... God the Son kind of watched that from a distance, stayed removed from that, and so He remained impassable, and the man Jesus suffered and died for our sins. But again, obviously this does not work because if Jesus the man, who's a different person than God the Son, suffered and died for our sins, then we can't really say that God has saved us, that God has suffered and died for us. We have to say that that man Jesus suffered and died for us, and we should worship Him and thank Him for our salvation instead of thanking God. And you can't do that because that's idolatry. That's worshiping a man instead of God. And so Cyril of Alexandria had the better explanation, the one that does the most justice to who the Bible says Jesus is, and the one that the church has accepted as orthodoxy, as right doctrine and belief ever since. He pointed out that when the Bible says things, like in John's Gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and in Philippians 2, that Jesus is in the form of God, and He took on the form of a servant, he said that the Bible is teaching what he referred to as the hypostatic union. Hypostasis was the Greek word for person at the time, and so he said once Jesus assumes our humanity, he is now one divine person who exists in two natures, divine and human. It's a union of his two natures in his one person. And so it's not two people, it's one person, God the Son, who now exists in a divine and human nature. He's always existed as God. He now exists as well, not just in a man like a temple, but as a man, as a true human being. God the Son assumes and personalizes a human nature so that we can say it's God the Son incarnate, God the Son in the flesh, God the Son existing as a man. And so when we talk about Jesus suffering and dying for us, we are talking about God the Son suffering and dying for us, but this is the key point. He's suffering and dying for us as a man. His suffering is a human suffering, which means that He is doing what the creeds say that He is doing. He's suffering for us and for our salvation. 
God, Jesus does not suffer in His divine nature. As God, He does not need to be redeemed. We as human beings are the ones who need to be saved. So Jesus assumes our humanity and suffers and dies as a human being to accomplish our salvation and bring us back to Himself. And so this is Jesus, really God the Son, suffering in His human nature. Cyril of Alexandria, he put it like this. He said, and since on this account he wished to suffer, even though he was beyond the power of suffering in his nature as God, then he wrapped himself in flesh that was capable of suffering and revealed it as his very own so that even the suffering might be said to be his because it was his own body which suffered and no one else's. Because God has made our flesh His very own. God's own flesh, as Cyril calls it in another place. We can know that we are truly saved. God accomplished our salvation by suffering for us as a human being. But again, this is the key paradox. Cyril said He suffers impassably. What that means is He really and truly suffers as a human being, but even in His human nature, even as a man, suffering cannot finally conquer and overcome Him. He freely wills and chooses His human suffering, and on top of that, He doesn't get defeated by it. He defeats death and suffering in His resurrection from the dead. God took on our flesh and made it His very own. He made our sin and our death and our suffering His very own so that He could make us His very own, so that He could reconcile us back to Himself. And so immutability and impassibility go straight to the heart of the Gospel. It is because God does not change and God does not suffer and cannot suffer that we can have hope in His promises. The immutability of His nature grounds the immutability of His promises. Remember Malachi 3. He says, I the Lord do not change. Therefore, Israel, you are not consumed. If God could change, if God was a man like us, fickle and changing, then He would have quit on us. He would have changed His mind about us. He would have given up on us after we had sinned too much. But God is not like that. He knew exactly what He was purchasing on the cross, and it did not stop Him at all. His love for us has never wavered. And it's because God does not change in His nature that that His promises do not change, and His promises can never be overcome or overpowered by anyone because He does not suffer. He does not have passions. He is not at the mercy of somebody else. And so nobody can stop God from saving you. No one can tie his hands behind his back and overcome his promises to you. No one can keep him from doing what he has set out to do to save us. And impassibility means two incredible things. One, it means God didn't have to psych himself up to love you. No pep talks in the mirror needed to get through another day of dealing with you No, He genuinely and truly loves you and cares for you with a love that is eternal. That love, He didn't have to be moved to love you. He didn't start loving you at a point in time. He has loved you with an everlasting love, a love that's not dependent on anything you've done or left undone. It's dependent on His character. Which means, too, you didn't move God to love you. You didn't tug on his heartstrings in just the right way to make him feel sorry for you and take pity on you. You didn't do something that really earned his attention and got his favor turned towards you. No, he has always loved you with an everlasting love, a love that has moved him to save you and reconcile you to himself. And and listen, for sure, our uh, feelings and our experience of God's love, it fluctuates day by day. We don't always feel the sense of God's love for us But God's love for us does not fluctuate. It does not go up and down because He does not go up and down. There is no He loves me, He loves me not with God. This is what Hebrews 6 says. It says that when God wanted to show more convincingly to the people who would inherit His promises uh, how secure His promises are, it says He swore by Himself because He had nothing greater to swear by 
And Hebrews 6 says, we now have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that goes to the place where Jesus already is in heaven, a hope that steadies us no matter how fast the waters around us might be racing. Listen, if you are in Jesus, you are so secure in Jesus that the only way you could lose your status as one of God's sons and daughters, the only way you could lose God the Father's love for you is if He stops loving Jesus, His Son, And that's just not going to happen. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you are in him, you are secure yesterday, today, and forever. Because he does not change and he's not going to quit on you. And so immutability and impassibility are incredibly good news. What do we do with this news? Worship. You worship the God who does not change and who cannot be overcome by suffering, who freely assumes our human suffering and conquers it in his flesh to save us. You meditate, you get your eyes and your heart and your mind on God uh, and so that you might, as the Psalms say about God, that he's a rock of refuge to which we can continually come. You get your heart and your mind on God and you contemplate how His promises for your life are unchanging because He is unchanging. You contemplate that He's not going to quit on you because His promises are as rock solid as He is. But if I could give you just one practice, maybe one handle as to how to practically put yourself in the space to do this, uh, here it is. Everything in our society is driving us to be able to never actually have to meditate or contemplate at all. Because every free moment that you have, you now have the ability to fill it up with a technological distraction of some form. What I mean is, what do almost every one of us do right when we wake up in the morning and right before we go to bed at night? We're we're checking and responding to texts and emails. We're scrolling through social media. We're on our phones until we go to bed, uh, until we have to get up. What are most of us doing when we're doing the dishes, or folding the laundry, or mowing the lawn, or driving to work, or running, or exercising. We're listening to a podcast, right? We've got that background distraction noise on. Like, you really have the ability, if you want to, to never actually have to be alone with your thoughts, and never have to contemplate and meditate on God uh, if you don't want to. You can numb yourself with every sort of distraction. It's all available to you, and that will kill you. And so, if I could just give you one encouragement, maybe one challenge, man, this week, maybe, like, as you're uh, going about the normal routines and rhythms of your life, like, fold the laundry and do the dishes, and just fold the laundry and do the dishes. Don't have a podcast on, don't have something else on, just let your mind drift to thinking about God and meditating on who He is. Mow the lawn, and just mow the lawn. Don't have headphones in. Let your heart and mind drift to thinking about God, meditating on how He's immutable and impassable. He's unchanging. He can't suffer. Uh, Go, when you're waiting in line somewhere, don't pull out your phone. Just be that weird person that just stands there in line uh, and think about God. Meditate on His promises. And I'm not even saying you've got to do all of that and you've got to quit cold turkey and never listen to podcasts or anything like that again. I'm saying take just one or two of these and, and just... Don't give yourself a distraction. Don't numb yourself with a distraction. Let your heart and your mind wander and actually think and get your heart and your mind on God. Again, the time to contemplate and meditate, it really is there for us if we want it. The question is, do we actually want it or do we just want to continue to numb ourselves and kill ourselves with distractions of every form? Because again, it's available to us and we can do that. Sometimes I I think we miss the the more formative aspects of the ways that God changes us. Because we're so saturated with podcasts, we want an instant, microwavable, podcast-linked episode sort of fix for our spiritual life, and it just doesn't work that way. The the work of changing and forming us into the image of Christ is much more of that slow, formational work that God does over time, as day by day, with fits and starts. You just try to do this. You try to get your mind on God and meditate on the goodness of who He is as revealed in the gospel. You try to get your heart steadied on the good news of the gospel. And if you just give yourself to this, even in small 
doses. You'll be amazed at the change that God works in you over the years as you get your heart and your mind off of the things that numb you and kill you and on to Him. And the good news is that as we walk with God, God actually makes us more immutable and impassable. As we walk with God, when suffering comes into our lives, we begin to become more steeled by suffering because we have an anchor for our soul to hold on to. Suffering doesn't crush us or overwhelm us anymore. Instead, it just drives us closer to God into a deeper trust of Him and a deeper love for Him and a deeper confidence in His good and wise rule and plan over our lives. As you walk with God, you become more consistently immutable and faithful in the way that you respond to people. You begin to more and more respond with love instead of hatred, with peace instead of frustration, with uh, kindness, with gentleness, with goodness, with self-control. The good news is that the God who does not change changes us as we walk with Him to look more and more like Him. And so let's give ourselves to this. Let's give ourselves to a life getting our hearts and our minds on God because, again, He is the rock of refuge to which we can continually come. Let's avail ourselves of Him. Let me pray that we would. God, thank You for the good news that You do not change and that You can't be overcome by suffering, that You don't have passions, that You're not like us. God, thank You that You are not fickle and moody and so dependent like we are. Thank you that you are independent. Thank you that you don't change. You don't change emotionally. You don't change in who you are. Forever exist as the fullness of who you are. Thank you for that. And God, thank you for the truth that the Bible reveals to us. That doesn't mean that you're indifferent towards us, that you're a dead and lifeless rock up in the sky, but that you're so alive with love and compassion for us that you've moved to save us, that you've assumed our flesh and you've assumed our suffering and death to conquer it. God, thank you for that. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love and moving to save us. I thank you that when we have run and when we have rebelled, you pursued us and you came after us and you saved us. And so God, would you do what your word promises to do in our lives? Would you help us to cling the steadfast anchor for our soul that you are and that your promises are. God, you help us to know that we have this hope that goes into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. God, would you help us to believe and cling to you who do not change when everything around us is changing and everything feels so weightless and rootless and maybe even scary and fearful. God, help us to cling to you and trust that you don't change, which means you are a rock of refuge to which we can continually come. God, thank you for who you are. Help us to get our hearts and our minds on you today and this week. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.